This is Daniel Knopf, and you are watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, episode 52, for Friday, March 23rd, 2012. Well, today is especially exciting because it's the launch of The Box, Haunted, at boxweb.com. That's B-X-X-W-E-B.com. And this is a revolution in storytelling, a multi-camera web platform. It's a horror genre tale by Daniel Knopf creator of HBO's Carnival. Well, guess what? Today's interview is with Daniel Knopf, creator of HBO's Carnival and The Box Haunted. And so you're definitely going to want to hear this interview, watch this interview. And as Daniel will tell you, this is invitation only. And so I hope you're watching this on Friday, March 23rd, because The Box launches at 11.36 p.m., on boxweb.com. And the only way you can become part of that invitation group is go to boxweb.com and sign your, your email address, and then they email you the invitation so that you can be part of this experience. So make sure you do go to boxweb.com, bxxweb.com to sign up. You can follow Daniel Knopf on Twitter, Daniel underscore K-N-A-U-F. And he's got some very interesting tweets. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. Well, speaking of revolution, one of the things that Daniel speaks about in his interview is how we can break the chains that the studio system has over us by having the hardware and the means to make and distribute our own content over the web. Well, on today's video tips, I'm going to talk about a revolutionary technology that can turn a simple Mac Mini laptop or desktop computer into an editing powerhouse. So you'll definitely want to check that out after the interview. You can check out this and other video tips on my YouTube channel. Search YouTube for Graham A. Jones. Uh, one other announcement is that the Toronto Screenwriting Conference is coming right up. I was at the one last year and it was awesome. It was incredible. I got to, got to meet a whole bunch of really, really cool people like Sheldon Bull, Dara Marks, and uh, uh, Penn Densham, a whole pile of other people. Well, this one, it has some amazing new guest speakers, including Graham Yost, Lee Aronson, and lots more. There's still, still time to sign up. It's at March 31st and April 1st. You can go to torontoscreenwritingconference.com for details. Now, on to my interview with Daniel Knopf, Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer, producer, and show creator Daniel Knopf. How are you, how are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing good. And I really appreciate you coming live video like this. It's uh, it's always um, so much more intimate when we can actually see you talking. Yeah, it's like uh, going to Tomorrowland at Disney. You know? It's like, yeah, picture fun. Yeah. I love it. Very, very cool. And uh, and people probably best know you as the creator of the uh, HBO series Carnival. And we're going to love talking about that in a bit. But first, what everybody is always fascinated by is how people got started and arrived at that kind of destination. So what, why don't you talk about uh, where you grew up when you first got the writing bug and how that manifested? Well, I, I grew up in Southern California uh, in a little bedroom community called La Cunada. And uh, 
Um, I, I really kind of came late to the writing. I was, I was more into the visual arts. And so I was, I was very much into drawing and painting and, and doing that kind of stuff. I didn't do a lot of writing, um, until I was, uh, really in college. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I, I went in, I, I, I got, I started going to, uh, to school and with a, with an art major and, uh, Got tired of hanging out with artists. <laughs> they were all so eccentric, mm -hmm. uh, so fashionably eccentric. And I, I, yeah, I, I started hanging out more with writers. I took a creative writing class, I think, at Pasadena City Community, uh, Pasadena Community College. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, what we like to refer to as the thirteenth grade around here. Uh -huh. uh, so as a, as a community college, I took a creative writing class and it was really kind of interesting because I realized what I was doing was I was, I was, I was, my canvas was now the inside of people's heads mm -hmm. and there is no bigger or better canvas than that. And, um, so it's like, uh, you're bypassing, you're bypassing, um, the canvas and the paintings and you're going directly inside somebody's head and they're interpreting what you're doing with the, you know, it, 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 I just, I love the medium. Mm -hmm. And, um, I started doing that and, uh, started writing mostly, I was, you know, poetry, short stories, that kind of stuff. And, and, um, eventually I just, my, my, I found I was taking more writing classes than art classes. And so I switched over to an English major sometime in my, God, I, was, I had a very uh, uh, aimless kind of college career. Mm -hmm. um, I think I switched over uh, when, I, when I started Cal State LA. And that was mainly because I said, okay, well, I need to graduate ASAP. Here is my bucket of transcripts from my three various institutions. What am I closest to? And the guy said, well, you're closest to an English major. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I'm an English major now. I mean, if he'd said you're closest to ping pong or, or, or fencing, I would have been a fencing major. Wow. Um, but I, I, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was sort of a slow drift to, um, to writing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I dropped it when I got out of college because it was it was sort of like a very unpractical thing to do. I was married. Um, I had a young child um, when I graduated. And so I went to work in a family business and it was uh, it was a, a, a health insurance consultant. Mm -hmm. And I did that for about six or seven years. And what I found, I mean, I had zero, nothing as far as a creative outlet went. And, mm -hmm. and what I found, I was actually going very quietly insane. I mean, I, I fell into a, um, I fell into a, it didn't all happen at once, but it was very over that, over that eight, six or seven year period. Um, I fell into a very deep and dangerous depression mm -hmm. and, uh, and, 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 um, ended up, ended up basically committing myself for, uh, with suicidal depression. Wow. Um, and I think the first day I was inside the hospital, I started drawing. Mm -hmm. And the second day I was writing. So it was like, I, I, I immediately started going back into that and I realized, 
I need to do this. If I, if I'm not, I'm like, it's like a shark. If I'm not swimming, I'm going to die. If I'm not doing this, um, I, 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 I can't survive without doing this. And, and, and I've, I mean, it's very dramatic story and all that fun stuff. And I, and, and, and I'm not particularly fond of, 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 of telling it all here. I am telling it, <laughs> but I guess, I guess the upshot of the whole thing is, is every really good writer I've met doesn't say, Oh gee, you know, I'd like to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it, for, for the, for the real writers, for the people I've run into, it's not a matter of they want to, it's a matter of it's, it's compulsion. It's obsession. They can't not do it. If they don't do it, they have problems. Mm-hmm. And, so I mean, I guess you could classify it as a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and uh, that basically was my my journey. Yeah. And now some great stories can come out of dark places. And uh-huh. uh, well, and and I know actually it's a fascinating story when you study old and, and amazing authors. It's amazing how many people had that kind of thing where it's just like they they if they didn't do this, they would have destroyed themselves. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's amazing how many people came out of the insurance business. Oh, yeah. Kafka was an insurance adjuster. Yeah, it's the only more boring job in the insurance industry than I had. Uh (laughs) And uh, but out of that place came Carnival. I mean, it was written far, far before it actually came out on HBO. Tell me about that. Well, first, uh, first of all, I knew. Carnival was a really, really a case of overreach mm-hmm. um, as a writer. I, early, early on, I mean, I was always in love with the epic. I loved, I thought, I'd love to tackle an epic someday. So it started with that. I, I want to write an epic. And then I think the next step, uh, as far as you know, the route of it, you don't come up with an idea like that. Like you don't wake up one night and go, "Oh, I got this great idea. I better just take a little note." You know, uh, you know, traveling show in mm-hmm. the '30s. Uh, you know, good versus evil. You know, I, it didn't happen that way. It was it was over the course of, of really a decade. And, and but the first one was just the idea of writing an epic, and the second one was. Um, you know, I was I was out for a walk early in the morning, and there was a carnival setting up in a local park. Mm-hmm. It was very early, like six thirty in the morning, and I saw these people, and they were sleeping underneath underneath the trucks. And I thought, my God, you know these these guys don't clock in. They this is their life. They this is a genuine subculture, which is impossibly romantic to me. And the other. Thing that attracted me to it is it really hasn't had at the time since then it has a little bit more but it was a milieu that really hadn't been treated mm-hmm. um and that much in in, in 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 literature media whatever and it was a universal experience and it was a it was a universal experience from the standpoint of everybody's been to a carnival and like a like a book like mm-hmm. if you read if you read tom sawyer when you're 12 years old it's going to be one experience when you read it when you're 17 it's another experience and and if you read it when you're you know 57 it'll be a different experience still carnivals are similar to that in that it's one world when you go there when you're 12 and then when you go there as an experience as a teenager it's, it's sexually charged you know there's always those possibilities it's dangerous mm. and when you go there as an adult you're usually going there with children so it's another experience again 
and given the fact that it was such a rich and and so um i felt american um experience although you know i'm sure you have carnivals in canada but Mm -hmm. you know it was was actually in in a sense it was a universal experience um i thought you know this is like finding a 20 dollar bill sitting on the sidewalk you got to pick this one up it's Mm -hmm. a it's a little patch of untilled ground and so i knew the carnival was going to be the milieu then it was just a matter of i knew you know every good epic it's big good versus evil the highest stakes possible you know will humanity continue to survive or not um and so the final real big piece in that was the it was the time and i considered a post-apocalyptic carnival but Mm. i felt like that that world had been pretty well done and I, I i thought you know i do know i want to be in another time in america's fairly young country and the only period we have that we've really effectively um uh, uh turned into you know um uh, a legend is mm. the west the old west and yeah. i think that's because because we are so young. We don't have a lot of history to draw back on to say, oh, you know, you're not going to write The Hobbit in the United States, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I realized, you know, we've got a little, we've got a lot of real estate between now and, and the Depression. So I can go in and I can, I can, I can, I can use that as fodder for a, a new kind of, um, a, a new kind of fantasy. And, um, and I liked that period between the two world wars because they were just so absolutely critical to where the country is today. Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought, yeah, this will be really, this will be interesting and, um, you know, desperate times. And so those were the, those were the three key elements. And that was a process that was, I think, I think I wrote my first draft in, uh, sometime in the late nineties and I wrote a f- screenplay. Mm-hmm. I, I was so dumb. I didn't know I was doing a TV show. I was, I was, I was writing features. That's all I was doing then. Uh-huh. And so I wrote a screenplay and I got up to like 212 pages. And I, was still, <laughs> I was in my second act and I was going, oh, I'm so screwed. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm in big trouble here. And so then I would try to, I tried to cut it down and I managed to get it down to like 178 pages and it was so tight. It was almost ridiculous. And, and I, it really was a bottom drawer script for a long, long time. Um, I set it aside and I thought, you know, maybe it is a, a TV show. And, uh, so I, I decided to do a treatment of it as a pilot, mm-hmm. um, sometime in the early two, in the early 2000s. I think. And then I thought, oh, you know, I'm in my 40s. I'm in my late 40s at that point. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to break into TV as like <laughs> a 45-year-old dude. That's going to happen, you know, with a pilot. Like, uh-huh. I'm not, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to collect my $200 and just fly past go on this deal. So, you know, it, that went in my bottom drawer. And, um, what happened was I ended up posting it. I, I was, um, I told myself if it, if the career isn't really taken off by the time I'm 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, I'd written this before I was 40. So uh, I'm getting my dates all screwed up. But in any case, I remember at a certain point I, I hadn't, it hadn't happened. I was 40 years old and I promised myself I'm going to start writing novels. I'm going to get out of the whole 
drama game. I'd had a little bit of success, but not enough to career out on. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, um, I'm, uh, and, but the problem is my, my brother puts it really well. You know, we're really sh- just terrible losers. The, the <laughs> boss, I'm the, we're the kind of people you don't want to play Monopoly with. Uh-huh. We're the, like, if we're not winning, we turn the board upside down and throw the pieces around. I mean, we're like crazy losers and, uh-huh. and, and just rotten losers. And, and my brother says, yeah, well, show me a loser. Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> and, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to take one more just drive at this because I've never really done the networking thing. I've just been focusing on my craft mm-hmm. and very quickly just writing, writing, writing. So okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a website. It's just going to be a depository for all my first acts. That way I, I can, if somebody wants to read a writing sample, I can just hand them a card and they'll have a URL on it. This is mm-hmm. wait, this is 99 or so. Yeah. So uh, actually, no, the first draft of the script was probably in 92. So this is quite a ways after that. I got, I got one decade off. That happens when you get like grizzled like me. <laughs> all blend together. So I, I, I created this website called Unmovies, posted all these things, uh, all these first acts on it. I got a call from a gentleman named Robert Kaobod, who was an assistant for a wonderful director, Scott Winant, um, probably one of the best directors in TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had told his assistant, I'm tired of reading the same old stuff. Get me something different. Now, keep in mind, this is, before Fringe, this is before Lost, this is before all of the genre stuff that we see all over the place now. Hmm. Back, talk about if you you were doing if you were doing TV, you were doing doctors or lawyers or cops. Period. Yeah. No, there really was nothing else on. You say, I want to see something different, and so Robert found this weird little pilot, and they contacted me. I had forgotten I'd even posted it. I was mm-hmm. like, how did? It was like, what did you, what, did you send somebody in to like search through my bottom drawer? Cause this is like, <laughs> it's a script at the bottom of the bottom drawer. Uh-huh. I mean, I would open it up every f- five or six years and throw it me, you know, and then, <laughs> and so he, he, uh, brought it to his boss. His boss called me in. They were all kind of terrified because here's this crazy person who's like they found on the internet. Uh-huh. And, and I came in and it was like, I'd had this brush with success that I'd blown. I actually, it kind of became my whole unmovies thing. I was writing a blog before there was such a thing as the word blog. So mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was, but they were just little stories about what not to do. Like all the stupid mistakes I'd made uh-huh. where I had, hadn't exploited this opportunity I had when I sold a Western back in 92. And so I was ready. I mean, I knew, I knew you know, I'd blown it once. I was like, I'm not going to blow it twice. And so I came in and the, the whole thing that I'd learned from that whole experience of having brushed with success, and then it kind of petered out and went nowhere was you really have to seize every opportunity you have to be, to just dazzle people, to just blow their minds. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and as soon as you think you've done the best you can, you have to just reach a little bit further and do a little bit better than that. And so I went in, talked to Scott. We got along great. It was my first time I'd talked to TV people. So it was, it was really an epiphany in a way because 
here are, you know they're they're in they're so solidly in production versus feature people, which it's all about the deal. And every once in a while, they they make something. Um, I was getting a totally different, much more pragmatic level of notes. This mm-hmm. works. This doesn't work. Let's try this. How do you feel about that? I'm just like, bring it on. You know. <laughs> so Scott and I developed uh, Carnival. And Scott's manager, um, Howard Klein, took it to uh, HBO, which at the time, this is such an, it's a really kind of an amazingly lucky confluence of things mm-hmm. that even, uh, I shouldn't even really even have a career, frankly. I'd, at that time, they had the surprise. HBO could do no wrong. They were absolutely intoxicated on their own brilliance. They mm-hmm. just had, they just were fearless. And so we brought this to this one place that at this one point in history was certifiably insane. Mm-hmm. And, and they went, Oh, so here it is. And it's, it's a, it's a period piece. It's a fantasy. It's special effects laden. It's written by a guy who's never, ever written anything ever for TV, and we're going to make him the executive producer on it. <laughs> I, I mean, they really, I mean, uh, even though I, I can't be mad at them when I think, well, oh, they canceled the show. Oh, you know, and a lot of people go, ah, HBO, you know, how could you do this? And, and when you think about how amazing it was that they took such a chance to begin with, it's mm. it's it's really hard for me to harbor any kind of resentment towards mm. that company for the cancellation because really it was amazing that they actually that this actually made it through the development process and through doing the pilot and actually got on the air and out in front of eyeballs. It yeah. was it was an astonishing store. It was just an astonishing piece of luck mm. and um, and and. and uh, you know, so that's the story of Carnival. It's it's sort of like uh, the, the the little engine that could, in a way. You mm-hmm. know? Well, and but, it was an expensive show too. Yeah, you know, people keep saying it was an expensive show. It was a lot of that expense probably could have been avoided um, for a variety of reasons. Um, we found the first year was more expensive than the second year in certain ways. Um, I think it could have been less expensive still. And there's shows that have been, they're more expensive than on on TV. So um, it just was at the time though. Yeah. At the time it was probably in the top. I would, I would, I would guess probably the top 10 percentile as far as expensive shows go. Mm -hmm. So it was quite, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was was quite challenging, quite expensive. Um, You had an ensemble cast, which is fairly pricey to begin with. And you have big, large groups of extras, you know, um, mm-hmm. and then you had uh, the production issues, but we kind of worked it down to a fine science, particularly in the second year where we were doing a surprisingly amount of a lot of work inside mm-hmm. um, that you would never think we did inside yeah. um, uh, where we were on the stage and we were shooting interiors for, we we're shooting, shooting, ex, you know, shooting exteriors on the stage which HBO had always shied away from because they wanted it to have a realistic look. And I, it's like, now you're really selling our production designers short. Mm-hmm. They can make this work, especially when we're doing night shots. Because oh, the yeah. sky's 
blown out anyway, you know. And it was just nice to have that kind of control over over our lights and everything. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the I think I think you said it was an expensive show. Yeah, it was it was an expensive show, but it wasn't you know outrageously so. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I think our our budget was like three and a half mil per episode. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, high, obviously, but I, I, it's certainly not high for by network standards. Yeah. Now, so. Yeah. so, so tell me how it felt. I mean, to go from, um, from before, I mean, it's not like you, you, you had some things produced and you, you were involved in some T, uh, TV movies, I think. And, um, and well, I had, I, I, I had, I had, uh, Blind Justice produced, which was sort mm-hmm. of like just doing a movie. Yeah. yeah. That's really TV. And once Carnival got picked up, or we went in development, um, I, I, my my agent said, "Well, let's see if we can get you a gig on a TV show." And um, I interviewed with Alex Gonzo over at Wolf Lake, mm-hmm. and I remember going in, you know, and it was like this goofy show, you know. And I didn't, I and and he he actually ended up hiring me in the room because I, I guess I was the only guy that I they had they put you in a room and they have you watch the pilot. Mm-hmm. He said, so what do you think? And I said, that's just awful. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I said, it's yours. It doesn't work here. It doesn't work there. It doesn't work there. Here's it's one long first act. It does nothing. It doesn't set anything up. I just, I don't know why I would watch this again. What would you do? Well, I'd do this, 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 and this. And he got very excited and they hired me. Wow. I, I called my wife up and I I said, you know that show I told you about that 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 Wolfman show? She says, yeah. I said, you know that one on on TBS? She goes, yeah. I said, well, they just hired me, oh. and it's not on TBS; it's on CBS. Oh. <laughs> like I'm on CBS. Wow. <laughs> it's like so. Um, I did that for a little while until Carnival heated up, and I had to leave the show because I was now you know developing my own pilot. Um, so yeah, we're talking about a, we're talking about a situation where it went from zero to about 150,000 light years per minute in very little time. Um, what was the experience like? Really, really, um, terrifying in a lot of ways. I, I didn't have, I didn't have the experience. Scott dropped out of the show after we did the pilot and Scott mm-hmm. really wasn't present for the pilot. I essentially produced the pilot myself. Um, and, and it wasn't the, the creative aspects of it. I was more up to, I mean, I, I know this world, it's my world. I built it. I mean, when you built, when you create your own, you know, when you create a show like this, you're playing to every strength you, you have as a writer. So mm-hmm. I mean, that was the issue. The issue is how do I deal with the network? How much power do I have? Mm-hmm. You know, where am I stepping over the line? There, it's it would be like if you or I suddenly were transported in time back, and we were suddenly transported into the um, court of Louis the fifth of Louis the fourteenth, and we had to function in that world. That it couldn't have been any more weird to me mm. as far as how do you talk to the president of the network? And, oh, no, no, no. You sent this memo and you put this person as a CC and they should have been up here or this name comes to you. I mean, there's, 
it, it's really a bizarre kind of um, it, it is like it is like the court of some weird kingdom mm. of of all these little protocols and who do you talk to versus it, and so in a lot of ways that adds to that adds tremendously to the expense of projects and I think mm. it detracts from the the the, the, the um, just just catering to all those egos that have no qualitative you know that make no qualitative difference to the show is exhausting yeah. as an artist and so that was really difficult i mean i made mistake i made a mis- i probably made 10 mistakes every day mm-hmm. uh, but I, I learned very quickly that all i had to do was make sure that i was focused on making the show great mm-hmm. if i was focused on making the show great then it was then I was fine. I would I was fine. It was all about what was going to be in front of the camera. At the end of the day, if somebody got their feelings hurt, you know, um, you know, or or somebody was upset because somebody didn't include them in a meeting, or you know, whatever, you know, nobody's going to see that. Nobody's going to know that. All they know is what's on the screen. And it's sort of like, I'm sure that, you know, you go to a museum and you see a Rembrandt. I'm sure that, you know, you don't care. You don't care who that painting's of. You don't care about <laughs> if you had with that particular person. You don't care about any of that. What boils down to is there's something that's, uh, that it's presented to an audience and it's this thing and it's, it lives and breathes and it's its own thing. And all those egos wrapped up in putting it up there don't matter for a hill of beans at the mm-hmm. end of the day. What matters is what's on, what's on the screen. And, um, it was funny because Ron, Ron Moore was bit, it was, it was tough. And he's, you know, an outstanding staff and, and Ron, Ron, it was weird because usually what, what they do when they, when they take a show, Believe me, I'm, I'm pretty sure they wanted to kick me off the show as soon as possible. But they mm-hmm. kept finding out that they couldn't, nobody could write it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and and, but what they found, what 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 usually what they do is they remove the creator and they'll bring in a showrunner because yeah. you don't want a binary star system. It mm-hmm. generally, it's not a you know they're really pretty and they're very exotic, but they don't they can't support life. You know, you just. <laughs> And, and so we had a binary star system in that we had the creator on it who had a certain cachet. And then we had the showrunner on it who had a certain cachet. And so who's in charge of this? You know, who has the moral authority to call uh, a decision? And, and Ron and I, you know, at first, it just, he did not, he, he'd been working with TV guys his whole life. And, and he understood that that thing. He didn't really get me, but at the very end, by the end of the season, he got me. He mm. understood. Now I get it. You just <laughs> want to be great. It's not about you want to be the boss or you want to, you know, you want to be. I mean, it wasn't the politics. We're not. I couldn't care less about the politics. All I was about was making the show as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I was arguing for one of Bill Schmidt's scripts. And, you know, I said, this is a great script. The network needs to see it. And Ron wasn't crazy about the script. And I mm-hmm. said, but, well, at least let him see it. At least let it have its day in court. And he says, I don't like it. 
if I don't like it, it's not going to go to the network. And I said, then I'm going to get in my car. If you don't do it, I'm, I'm taking the script. I'm getting my car. I'm driving down to Century City, and I'm handing it off to him because uh-huh. they're going to script Ron. And he he looked at me. He was going, "What is the matter? It's not even your script." And it went, <laughs> they're all my script because it's about my people. You know, yeah. we were having, and, and it was that was one of those you know where, you know where we were like the loggerheads over this thing. And at the end of the day, Ron was the showrunner, and I, I owed an apology. I mean, it really, but, 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 you know, but an argument like that to Ron was like, where is this thing even coming from? Like, uh-huh. Why is he arguing so passionately? Why is he risking his job? Because mm. I could lose my job over this. Why is he risking his job so that somebody will read? one of the staff writers scripts that he happens to like how crazy is that mm-hmm. once he understood the reason i wanted him to read it is because it was a damn fine script and it might not work for them but they needed to read it once he got that then, then we got each other and we got along great mm-hmm. i mean uh, at the end of the day um you know it was it, it was it was a good relationship when we understood each other um, but it was it was always difficult. It was a very um, politically it was a very difficult show. The mm-hmm. only thing difficult about Carnival really where it was was all of the uh, was was the politics. Mm-hmm. It would have been helpful had I been David Chase or somebody who had this great amazing body of work that he could say, "Hey, you guys, you didn't create this. You didn't do this. I didn't have that." So. Mm-hmm. I had to make my bones like every day with these folks, you know. But well, kudos to you because you pulled it off. I mean, two two seasons. I mean, it's that <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, it's better than a sharp stick in the eye. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's 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 just super. And so now, of course, um, the the call did come at the end of the second season um, that it wasn't going to be renewed. So mm-hmm. what what was your response then? What happened then? Well, it was really interesting because we got a call early on that, okay, well, Chris has decided we're not going to do 12. We're going to do two mini seasons of eight. So a lot of people go, oh, gee, you know, the first half of the season goes at a certain pace and then it just jams up and it mm-hmm. becomes really fast. And it's like, that's because we thought we had 16. We didn't find out until we were like eight in. That, oh, no, they're not going to do that anymore you know <laughs> too many three they're just gonna do they're gonna do just you know i guess it's 13 is it 13 or 12 I, it's all it's all a mess they're just gonna do the, the typical order um and and uh so we had a kind of you know whoa gotta speed this thing up um it, at the end of the day um at the end of the day, I wasn't terribly surprised. I was less surprised when we got canceled than I was surprised when we got picked up the first year. Uh-huh. So, I mean, because like I said, the show never really, the show really was an odd thing to even have happened to begin with. The fact that they did pick it up, well, they waited until the last possible contractual minute to pick it up the first season. Mm. Um, it wasn't like all those HBO series where, you know, they, they broadcast an episode and then make an announcement that they're picking it up for the next 19 seasons. You know, mm-hmm. and that wasn't the story of Carnival. Um, and we were always, were sort of like the, the, our problem 
was their expectations for the show. I remember knowing we are in, we are so dead. The day that Howard came to me and he said, yeah, they're really excited over there. They think that this is going to do better than the Sopranos. No. Yeah. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, if, the, if that's our benchmark, we're dead. We're so <laughs> dead because we're a, we are dealing with a genre show. And it doesn't matter how great a genre show is. There are people that just don't like genre shows. It's yeah. like, okay, well, look, you want to listen to a country music song? No, I don't like country music. No, but it's a really, 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 really great country. It's the best country western song ever written. If I don't like country western, if I don't like that idiom, I don't care. Yeah. I don't want to hear. It. Same is true with that. Now, the, when you go, when you're dealing with the surprise, which is a straight up drama, you have a much broader potential audience than you will with any genre show. So mm. there was absolutely no way we were going to be able to meet the expectations of the network. And their benchmark was, 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 dis- was, was really distorted and unrealistic. And, and we, of course, didn't meet that benchmark. And so we were always a big disappointment to them. Mm. Uh, now, these days, if you look back at our numbers, which disappointed them then, would have been probably a hit mm-hmm. by, by, by HBO's standards today. Um, but because we were, me- we were measuring up to what was, a, we, we were trying to measure up to what was essentially a social phenomenon mm-hmm. in, of the order of Dallas. I mean, really, mm-hmm. you know, when you've got a show that's coming up regularly in Saturday Night Live and on, in Leno's monologues and the, Bada bang and whack and all these things are entering the general idiom in people's languages. It's that 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 happens once a, a decade. And mm. for there's no way carnival. <laughs> no, I mean yeah. you know people weren't going to be walking, going to work, going hey, better shake some dust. You know, I mean it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So um, really, I think the main reason we we got canceled in a lot of ways is it was that we were, we were working in the shadow of what, what was, uh, you know, the, the phenomenal sort of success of, of, of Sopranos and to a lesser degree, sex in the city. Um, and we couldn't, we couldn't measure up to those two. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So, so after it was, it was canceled, you did um, some work on Supernatural and Standoff as a co-executive producer. Um, tell me about that time. It was weird because, look, when I got this job, it was sort of like you know, you, you know those. It would be like you go to the you go to you go to you go to the, the hockey game, right? Because I'm here in Canada, so I'll say hockey. Right? Well, I have to say basketball. You go to the basketball game, and there you go. Okay, well, we've got the T-shirt gun, and whoever catches the T-shirt gets to try to go to the free throw line or and see if he could throw a basket. And if he could throw a basket, <laughs> he gets a brand new, you know, Chevy Volt or some, you know, a car of some kind. I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> the guy caught the t-shirt. I walked down and I threw the basketball and it went in. And so it was, it, it was like, nobody knew me. Nobody mm. in the, I had just come out of, I had trans, I was a cross town transfer from a totally different high school. Uh-huh. I was going to Hollywood high and nobody knew who I was. So when I got out of carnival, I had almost re, it was like, 
I knew I was, I knew I was doing well because there were a lot of people who said they'd met me and had lunch with me that I'd never met before. Mm -hmm. uh, that I hear about secondhand. Oh yeah. Joe says he had lunch with me. What's like, Oh, who's Joe? You know? Um, which I guess means you're successful in Hollywood. Um, but I had to actually go out and start meeting all these people and letting the, them know that, that, you know, uh, you know what I what I'm about, and, you know what I can do, and and I kind of had to make my bones. And part of that was just okay, let's do some journeyman work. You know, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a guy on staff. I'm just going to be, you know. And so when I did Supernatural, um, it was just really I was it was almost like a sample script. I was writing, I wrote. Um, the Striga episode as uh, uh, a freelance assignment. Mm -hmm. And hopefully thinking, well, maybe I'll get on staff with this. Um, but I didn't, you know, they didn't hire me. They didn't, didn't they, I guess, or they didn't hire me for whatever reason. They liked the script, but uh, um, I just didn't fit. Also, my, I started at such a high level. Um, you know, people are leery about taking a guy who ran his own show a high-profile show has the executive producer credit mm -hmm. and hiring them as, you know, a consulting producer or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's just like, well, he's taking a big step down. And it's like, guys, you know, I need some work experience. I, I really, I want to be an Indian. I've been the chief. I enjoyed it. I'm pretty good at it. But mm -hmm. I'm, perfectly I'm perfectly satisfied helping you be the chief. And, um, I ended up on a short list. I, the the standoff show. Um, it was, I end up on this list of shows where they're not really working for one reason or another, and so they'll bring me in to sort of like I'm. I, I watch. I love. It's always sunny. It's one of my favorite yeah. shows, and I'm like the Charlie character. I'm 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 the wild card. <laughs> bring in Charlie. You know? And it's suddenly the guy they bring in is, oh, we need somebody who just sits outside the box. So I yeah. guess I'm the outside box guy. Yeah. And um, so they'll, they'll bring me in and it's a great little list to be on. You're very well compensated. I mean, you know, and if the show's successful, then you get, you know, an unreasonable amount of credit for making it successful. And if the show tanks, it's not your fault because it was on its way out anyway. Mm. I'm batting one for three so far. Uh -huh. I, I and did, now, did on, uh, my own so. worst enemy was one of those. I, I was on my own worst enemy, which was a show that was flawed on a conceptual level. Mm -hmm. um, that that was a show that couldn't really be fixed. Um, but we did we we were, we we did our best with it. Um, and I made a, I made a great friend in, 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 uh, John Eisendrath, who was the, the showrunner I worked under, who was just a brilliant. I'm just a sponge at this point. I just, I hopefully get to work with great people and soak as much stuff up as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, and John, John's a gentleman and he did a great job and he was, it was a very difficult thing when you're trying to make a show work that doesn't, can't, it can't work. Um, yeah. And uh, then I worked with Stephen Denight on uh, Spartacus, which was another, you know, I saw, this sounds so Hollywood because it's like, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. He's, well, you know, Stephen's a great guy. Um, and uh, my, you know, a lot of people, yeah, you know, that show was much better when you came on. And it's like, no, all I, I did on Spartacus was I ran the room so that Stephen could go do his thing on the show. You mm. can really 
put, you know, we rewrite all those scripts. And, and I mean, frankly, I've never been more, I mean, everybody on that show, it's like he, he, he vets and rewrites every line of that dialogue and it's it's poetry. I mean, he's, Stephen is, is, is just, he just, that stuff just comes out for him. And, um, so it just, it just, it freed him up from, from a lot of housekeeping and allowed him to, you know, really make the show great. And so, uh, that was also a very, a very good experience as far as being on staff goes. Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had some, I've had some, I've had some good experiences, but mainly I've been very, very frustrated mm-hmm. in that, um, the, it's not a great, I mean, Hollywood today, the TV business today is not, it's really not, it's not a very good place to be if you're creative. Um, if you've got a creative bent, um, it's a great place to work if, if, if you're, if you just want to collect a paycheck, but that's never, I mean, not that I'm above that, you know, I've got a family to feed, but um, that's never been what it's all about for me. And I, mm. So uh, I, I consider myself off the reservation at this point. I'm, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah. Well, and so yeah. let's, let's talk about sort of your last two, three years, like current-ish projects. Um, you, I, I read online, you had a mystery thriller, the legend of Kane, um, mm-hmm. as well, uh, year zero. And then of course you've got the, the BXX or how do you, how do you say that one? Box. Box? Just box. Just box. Yeah. Yeah. The middle X is silent. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the middle, the middle X is pronounced. Ah, uh, yeah, the, I've, I've, I've been again, really fortunate and I've been working with some really amazing, amazingly, um, talented people uh, the my experience with uh will will and jada uh, smith on on uh, uh on king was one of those weird sort of i uh, they called me in and, and jada's brother caleb had this wild idea for uh vampire series and television series and i came in and we talked about it and i said you know what i said there's so many vampire series this was a few years ago i said it's just there's so many that it's like, I don't really want to do me too thing. I said, but you know, this would be a really cool series of films. And they kind of perked up and said, Oh, what would you do? And so I sat down and really did some world building for them and then wrote a draft of the first, uh, of the first, um, feature. Uh, and, um, and it, it, it's a fantastic idea. I mean, the idea is it, it's not really a vampire story. It's a love story, but it's a love story in which the, the protagonists are immortal. Mm. And I mean, the, the vampirism is more or less a divorce or a, a device rather. Is that? No, they don't get divorced. <laughs> uh, it's a device that allows them to live forever. So what we do is we do one movie that takes place, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, 1700 BC. The second movie takes place in like, you know, 380. And then the last one would be contemporary and it would be the same two characters through wow. all those films. And I thought, this is really cool. And so, um, I did that with them and, and working with Will is, I mean, he's just, I'm, 
he's just got astonishing story sense and and it's it's really he's a hands-on guy I mean, really we're literally sitting in in a room in his house um going over every every line of a script mm-hmm. um and so went through that process and like most features what happens is you do your thing for a while and then that ball gets handed off to somebody else, especially in the writing aspect of it's very rare where you are writing from the very beginning, the inception of a project outside of the independent world, hmm. um, where you're start, where you're the guy who comes on at the top and you're the guy who shows up at the premiere. Um, there's usually a lot of hands in the mix in between that. And so I did everything I had, I was going to do on that. Um, and then, you know, we've parted ways, but we're still in touch. And so it's like, I may very well come back in and do some work on that, but I, you know, um, it's, it's like there it's in the machine now it's somewhere. in I think about that. Remember that, that Stephen King thing about the laundry folding machine. It was, I forget what it was called. Oh, uh, the mangler. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's the bangler. It's like the sheet goes in and it gets folded up and people kept falling in it and getting all. Oh, no. That's what Hollywood is. You know, yeah. it's like I, I kind of shoved the sheet and went into the mangler. So now it's somewhere in the mangler. And yeah. then I fully expect in like six or seven years, I'll get an invitation to a premiere and I'll watch it. And every 20 or 30 minutes, I'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that line. <laughs> That's Hollywood. Yeah. You know? Wow. So, and so t- tell me about the the other ones, Year Zero and, and The Box. Year Zero was another one where um, I was brought in by BBC and uh, and worked with, uh, worked with Trent in just shaping the material to make it uh, a, uh, a serial TV show. Um, and again, you know, it's like one of those situations where, you know, you, I, I, uh, I had a certain, I had a contract, did my contract, created this, uh, I think it was a, I think it was like a 13 episode arc, um, and broke story for all those episodes for, we took it to HBO, HBO bought the, uh, bought the series. And, uh, since then they came to me and said, well, you want to bring another writer in on it? I said, well, yeah, please do, you know? Mm-hmm. And they get kind of freaked out when you do that. You go, well, yeah, well, go ahead. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm ready to move on because I love doing my own stuff, you know? And, um, and so, uh, I think they've got a, uh, they've got another writer who's, who's trying to whip it into shape for, uh, for series, but I don't know where it's at in the development process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Cool. But again, yeah, Trent was another one of those guys who's obviously it's his baby. I mean, he created that world, and, and he was he and I were working fairly closely together. And and, uh, and he's uh, you know I've just been really again really fortunate that I've I mean who gets to sit who gets to sit in a room with Will Smith or Trent Reznor <laughs> side by yeah. side with them? It's, it's 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 something I'll be telling my grandchildren about. You know, so, yeah. Very, very cool. And the box. Ah, what? Oh, box. Well, box was, box is the child of just becoming very frustrated. I know a lot of showrunners now. I mean, I know a lot of really good showrunners and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people that I've worked with. And I can't think of a time they're miserable. 
They're absolutely, everybody in the business right now is absolutely miserable. And it, it really boils down to the sin fin rules that have evolved to a point to where, you know, there's been, you know, the networks own the, the networks and studios are, it used once upon a time, you had the studio at your back, you know, and you had the network in front of you. Now you've got both of them in front of you. There's too many people with, that don't know how to do that have the ability to give notes. Um, they're very timid. They're not willing to make any kind of risks or take chances. Um, yeah, I, I like to, I, I like to call them peripheral visionaries. <laughs> they're really good at yeah, this, but not very good at that. Um, and I just got tired of, it. I've got a body of work that I've done since carnival. That If I stacked it up, it's about, you know, 10 feet high. And of that body of work, maybe a couple feet of it have been seen by, by the audience. And, and my, I didn't, I didn't get into this game to um, write for a handful of executives and especially a handful of frightened executives who are just, they're teetering on the brink of no at all times. I mean, they're, they're dying to say no because it's, you don't get fired over no, mm-hmm. you know, you, you might. You know, if you say no to ET, the extraterrestrial, you know, I mean, you might get fired, but I don't think so. Um, what they do is they go, who knew? <laughs> you know? Um, and I just, I just, uh, I've gotten tired of, I like to put it this way. It's like playing Mother May I mm-hmm. with Joan Crawford, you know? <laughs> I just, I just thought, I don't want to play Mother May I with these people anymore. I don't want to play in the sandbox anymore. I want to just, and, and in a way the time is right because it used to be the only reason these people exist. The only reason these creatures um, managed to manage to exist is because at one time there was a chasm between the artist and the mass audience. And so it was a very expensive bridge that needed to be built. Very expensive equipment needed to be bought. Lots of people needed to be involved. Um, you had to have a distribution network set up. You had to have prints. You had to have advertising. You had to have all these things to reach across that chasm and shake hands with the audience. Well, with the internet, I have international distribution instantly. I can put something up and the world has access to it. With the equipment, um, I'm sitting right now at a, at a, at a, uh, a, 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 ironically, the company that makes my computer is called Box. <laughs> they, they do uh, PC based editing suites. I've got um, Adobe Premiere Pro CS5.5 on there and I can create pretty much every digital effect that you see that's you know feature quality um and i can put together one of the i can have one of these systems cost me under ten thousand yeah. dollars um the uh cameras you know um we had uh, cutting edge uh dvr built for our needs which was challenging you know having 16 cameras running into a pipe and managing to capture all that footage without dropping frames mm-hmm. uh, and that was something i bought for eight thousand dollars um the it's not cheap but it's you know people spent people finance cars that cost more than it does to set up 
um, like all the things you need in order to facilitate production. So um, now the equipment is in my hands. Now, so I've got the equipment. I have the distribution. The lunatics are now officially in charge of the asylum. Um, <laughs> I don't need them. Yeah. And I had a conversation. I was. I met with. Um, I met with a couple of very good showrunners. I won't. I won't. I won't drop their names, but everybody knows who they are, and if, and they're, they're showrunners of that degree. Where you know you're, you're. I would say you know most people who watch TV know who these two guys are. And I was telling them what I was doing, and they were leaning forward and leaning forward, like 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 I felt like I was describing. Uh, a pork sirloin to two start. <laughs> um, there is a there is a a group of extraordinarily talented, um, horribly oppressed, mistreated, badly treated artists in mm-hmm. Hollywood right now who are all wealthy. Okay, they've got money and they've got houses to pay for and so forth. And that's the only reason they're still doing it. That's the only reason they're still playing ball with these guys. Um, I'm kind of like the first guy out who's saying, you know what? We don't need them. We don't need any of these guys anymore. We can, we can, we, I, I'm having a great time just talking to my audience on Twitter. I mean, just say, Hey guys, what do you think of this? Does this work for you? What do you think of this layout on, on, on our website? But mm-hmm. you know, I can have, I can have a conversation with everybody in my audience and, you know, and as far as like, okay, well, what about monetization? How are you going to monetize this thing? How are you going to make, you know, when we went, when, when I went out with this idea, I did the Kickstarter thing, which we didn't meet our goal on. But after I didn't meet my goal, I was kind of bummed, you know, because I have like, you know, five figures in, in I mean, it's laughable at my Hollywood standards, the money I've spent, but I mean, significant for an individual. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe I can offset this with some, you know, con- you know, some donations or contributions or something. Everybody who made a sizable contribution on Kickstarter, I some guy, well, oh, heck with Kickstarter, and all of a sudden I get money in my PayPal account. And so, I mean, I, I, I got, I got fourteen thousand dollars from my audience who just sent me the money. Wow! It's just to hope that oh, we really want to see what you're doing. And, and I go, you know, okay, the monetization thing, it's going to take care of itself. I'm not going to worry about that. Um, you know, the, if people want to see something and they're willing, you know, and, and you charge, um, and you charge a reasonable amount, um, I would say on the model of, um, you know, iTunes, um, where it's like, okay, here's the deal, guys. I don't have ads on my site. We don't have we don't have banner ads. We don't have roll-ins. We don't have any of that stuff on deck for box when we premiere. Um, do you want to keep it that way? Then you know, click on this link and you know, check out the new iPhone four. You know, um, give us a hand here. You know, or maybe you know send us a couple of bucks or whatever you know i, mean, I don't know how we're going to how we're going to make this thing fly financially but i do know that people are willing to just as long as you're not you know sitting here and going oh well you know i know you want this song but you're going to have to buy the whole album to get it and it costs mm-hmm. 19 dollars you know it's like that model died with the, that's dead 
And I think the model that we're seeing now where, oh, well, you know, I was appalled when I saw when Carnival came out. And it's, oh, yeah, two episodes per disc. And it's, it was 75, 80 bucks for a season when, it, when they first caught it out. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't pay that. Yeah. What makes them, why would, you know, I mean, there's no reason for that. And it's like, what do you have to be such pigs for? I mean, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think that, I think that, you know, um, there's a reason, there's no reason to shake people down. You don't need every nickel out of their pocket. You don't need to exploit things. I'm, a, I'm as big a capitalist as anybody is. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, but you know, hey, a song should cost ninety nine cents. You know, if you want to watch a, if you want to watch an episode of the TV show, you should be, you know, you have a choice. You can watch a couple of ads, or you can pay ninety nine cents. You know, if you want to get a whole season, it shouldn't cost more than ten bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those are that's th- those are what I would call reasonable price breaks instead of what a lot of these guys seem to want to do. You know, but then they got a big monster to feed because they got a bunch of people that they are paying just a huge amount of money to. I came very close to saying a bad word, mm-hmm. but a very large amount of money to that do nothing. They, they do nothing except suck the joy out of the creative process and, 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 and do, and they make their, they make their bones just in the job justification business. You know? mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I've got a note. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Well, no. And, and, uh, and I think, there, there is something emerging right now, uh, and we all probably know. You probably heard about the Louis C.K. experiment, where it was a, a stand-up comedian who, um, who basically took out the middleman, and he he recorded his own show, and mm-hmm. he sold it on his own website, PayPal five dollars, and mm-hmm. and he made a million bucks in the stretch of a few days. Yeah, well, there you go. And yeah. That's what's gonna. Yeah. It's it's gonna be a stampede. I mean, I'm, I I'm um, this particular project um, box is is to me the reason I did the internet is because I wanted to do nobody's nobody's treated the internet like like a grown up. They treat it like a like I said. A, the, I used to be on these shows. It'd be like, oh wow, what what are we doing with the internet? Oh, well, we got this really cool promo site, and it's like. What it's it's a bus bench, that's what it is for mm. you people. This is a the probably the greatest, most all encompassing medium to ever be invented is a bus bench for you people. That's how you want to use it. Oh no, we're creating a game. We're gonna have a game. Oh really? It's always lame. They don't know what they're doing with the internet. They look at. I was talking to guys at Blizzard. Right, and they said we had some Hollywood people down here, and they wanted to they want us to come up with a, an online game to go with their movie, you mm-hmm. know. And they're saying, well, we want to hang on to these rights. We want to hang on to these rights. You can have this. We'll we'll throw you this bone, Blizzard. We'll let you have this. And the guy looked at me. He says, "We make as much every month as they grossed on Spider Man down here." Wow. It is a case of the tail wagging the dog. So here you have these pikers coming down from Hollywood who think that they've just got the world by the tail. They're whistling past the graveyard, man. They have no idea of what's going on. They don't know what's coming. What's coming is 
artists are going to be creating stuff directly for the internet. The relationship is going to be with me and my audience. I don't need a publicist. I don't need, uh, I certainly don't need a publicity department. Um, uh, there is a revolution afoot and, uh, and, and I, th- I'm, I think it's going to be an amazing decade, you know? Mm-hmm. Very, uh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. And uh, so we're getting close to the end here. Um, and that's a great place to end up that section. I do have to get to a couple of viewer questions if that's okay. Oh, please. Yep. And one of them is uh, Renee says. And, and I, should, I should talk about box a little bit, but since it is what I'm working on. Let's mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, let's let's do the viewer questions and then we can we can uh, finish up. So, uh, Renee says, "I'm a huge fan of Carnival. Um, it must have been considered a risky venture, even for a cable channel. How confident were you at the beginning, and how supportive was HBO in launching the show?" HBO, um, in, well, they were very supportive at the outset. We had tremendous numbers on the first night. The numbers dropped off very quickly, and then they were in a state of panic for about a few time. And, and they had other things on the shelf. They had the, they had other shows. They had uh, they had Rome. Um, they had a lot of production issues on Rome that they were dealing with. They had uh, Deadwood um, and and uh, and David Milch is, is can can be can be a, you know a, 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 he's pretty he's 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 a high, I guess he's, he's pretty high maintenance but pretty, pretty high maintenance for them. Um, I'm not saying I I don't know I was mm-hmm. I, but yeah I would I mean I'm sure David David was 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 demanding some attention mm-hmm. and like I said we became a bit of a red redheaded stepchild over there. Um, we were the guys that didn't quite measure up. You know, it's like they put us on the football team and we dropped the ball. Um, so after that, they really kind of didn't. I mean, they, they went through the motions. And then there was also the fact that at the time, again, this is before the um, before just this huge amount of genre stuff on. I remember the first season. Oh, we're spending this much on billboards and we've got these ads. We've got these spots and we're going to be doing this. We're going to be doing that. We're going to. What are we doing? Well, so what are we going to be doing over at Comic Con? What are we doing at Comic Con? Comic what? What? What's Comic Con? No. Yeah, they had no idea what I was talking about. Wow. And that's not that's not a slam against HBO. It's not saying HBO is clueless. HBO is the most clueful group out there. Okay. The entire industry didn't really know. Uh, about the existence, the power, the importance of the whole of the whole fan fanboy base, and so we were we were non-existent in the con- in, in we should have been out at every convention, and we didn't go do any of that work. Mm. We there should have been ad, there should have been there should have been um, there should have been a graphic novel coming out with alongside this there should have been companion pieces with it there was a lot of stuff that didn't happen that should have happened on the show and i think the reason wasn't so much that you know hbo didn't want to make it successful they absolutely did they had a huge investment in this Mm -hmm. i mean you know around 40 million a year i guess they just didn't they just didn't function in that world their headset wasn't in that world and yeah. um well it seems it so, seems like they've learned since then i think everybody's learned since then i mean 
yeah. even particularly in genre. Um, Comic-Con yeah. has just exploded in the last, well, the years oh. since then. Yeah, um, but the, look at what, even now, look at what they do. Yeah, they're yeah. all at Comic-Con. But then they're taking shows that have no, that have no genre stuff. You know, yeah. they're, 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 you know, you go to Comic-Con and, and I, you know, hey, I love, like I said, I love It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I think it's a funny, funny show. That doesn't belong in Comic-Con, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, it, it's just, they, they always go, oh, well, uh, another outlet for promo. And uh-huh. boom. You know, let's put our stuff in. And it's like, you know, you got to have a little bit of respect for the fans, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. Cool. And one last question. Philippa asks, uh, love the tarot card opening. Who devised the images and symbolism? The name of the company was A12. I had, I'd love to say, oh, you know what? I molded that entire sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I had my hands on the, uh, the people. I would say if anybody's to credit for that, it would be Carolyn Strauss, um, who was head of programming at HBO, was very heavily involved in making that opening credit sequence. So I know she was really into it. Um, and, um, and, and A12, the company. They just did a brilliant job, um, and they they captured the milieu and set the tone, and, and I was very thrilled with it. I'm one of those guys. I just love like if somebody if I when I when I hire somebody to head up a department or to do something, I love to just put a pin in it because then when they come to me with the stuff they've done, it's like Christmas. You yeah. know, oh wow, look at this cool stuff, and that's that the the, the credits were like a huge Christmas present for me. I had zip to do with the creatively other than inspiring them, I guess, you know, but, mm. uh, yeah. Well, um, I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time here, but, uh, we can certainly give some contact information. The, the box website is, um, is what? Well, right now we're in process of building, um, the new website. We've had sort of a, sort of a placeholder site mm-hmm. that, blackbox.com mm-hmm. we are now we will be at boxweb bxxweb.com mm-hmm. uh, box is box will be a the first it's i call it a box narrative it's the first narrative format designed specifically for the internet it, it couldn't work in, on any other medium um, and, uh, really what we're talking about is a show. We were talking about a show that's shot in real time from 16 different cameras and you can bounce between those cameras any way you want. It's completely nonlinear. You don't wow. have to watch it beginning to end. In essence, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm pulling my, I'm, I'm creating, I'm creating the story. It does have, their story has a beginning, middle and end. But then again, if you've seen Memento or if you've seen Sunset Boulevard, everybody knows sometimes we start stories with the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you can watch it that way and thoroughly enjoy it. It's completely up to you to decide what order these scenes and sequences go in. You become in essence, you become the author of your own experience in wow. black in box. So um, it's a wholly new form of narrative storytelling. I'm absolutely thrilled um, to be able to get it out, and we're making it up as we go along. We're just inventing this thing. So it's been <laughs> great. Wow. Um, well, that's, so, that's yeah, super exciting. It's going to be invitation only. So if you want an invitation, 
Um, you can follow Box Box Web BXXWEB on Twitter, mm-hmm. or just drop us an email um, info at Box or go Buzz B U Z Z at Box Web. You'll get on the invitation list. That will allow you to access uh, Box, our, our premier Box Haunted project. That's our first one, and we go live. And you've never seen anything like it. I can guarantee it. Hopefully you'll see something like it when we do another one. It depends on how well this goes. I want to, I, I don't like playing to an empty audience or empty house rather. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to see it, uh, you got to get an invite. And so, you know, write us, tell your friends. I'd like to fill that house up as much as we can. Very cool. And they can follow you on Twitter at Daniel underscore Nuff. Yes, yes. I'm kind of shy on Twitter, as you know. I don't. <laughs> Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very leery about actually engaging others on mm. Twitter. <laughs> 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 cool. Well, I'm a real, um, I'm a real wallflower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we do have to end it here, but I uh, thank you so much for t- taking the time, and I can't wait to see what's in the box. Hey, I'm, I can hardly wait to talk to you again. If you want to follow up after the premiere when it goes down in flames, and you can, <laughs> we'll be. I'm doing this. We'll be doing this interview. I'll be on the on the ledge of a building uh-huh. for the duration. We can we can set it up there. Uh, cool. <laughs> well, thanks again. And, uh, right. and best of luck. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Daniel Knopf. Don't forget to go to bxxweb.com, boxweb.com, to sign up for your special invitation to be part of this experience. Follow Daniel Knopf on Twitter, Daniel underscore K-N-A-U-F, and also follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones. You can get back episodes of the podcast at tvwriterpodcast.com, and there's lots of other great resources, including a uh, database of TV writers on Twitter. But right now, it's time for video tips. Enjoy. Well, today we're going to talk about Magma PCI expansion and closures, and this is a revolutionary technology that I'm going to talk about today, and I'll explain why. Well, most cameras and camcorders and other types of technology are evolutionary. They bring slightly better features than the previous models. For instance, um, the the first Canon DSLR camera, the, the Canon 5D Mark II, that could shoot video brought about a revolution because you could shoot cinema-style video with an inexpensive camera. Well, today you're about to see a revolution that might enable you to create a powerhouse editing workstation out of a very inexpensive computer. And the reason is because Magma, who have been longtime makers of PCI expansion products and then PCI Express expansion products, now have a new Thunderbolt model. And I'm going to talk about this Thunderbolt model and also all of their other offerings for PCI Express, including other ways that you can expand your desktop or laptop computer. I'll explain why we might need this. Current Macs and PCs, both of them, (laughs) are very limited in the number of PCI Express slots they have. Most Macs and and all laptops have none, no PCI Express. Mac Pros 
have four slots. Two of them are limited to 4x speed on older models, might be even less. With PCs, you might have five to seven PCI Express slots, but often only two or three of them are high speed slots. And depending on your motherboard, some of them may not support large cards or they might be blocked. Say for instance, uh, the way your, your motherboard is configured, whether you've got big cards in there or uh, there's lots of other, other reasons they might be blocked. And what are some of the things that you might put in these card slots? Well, a RAID card. Uh, these days, we have huge media needs. And, the, you know, we need more and more and more and more space. And it's very, very important that this space be protected. With RAID technology, you have the ability to set up a large storage um, enclosure where if one of the drives fails, you don't lose your data. Very, very exciting stuff. Beyond the scope of this particular episode, but suffice it to say, you might need a RAID card. Often that RAID card might need a slot for a battery backup. You might need more than one RAID card for different types of RAIDs. For instance, an SAS RAID or a port multiplier, eSATA RAID. While for editing, you're going to need a video capture card, like one from Blackmagic or Matrox. A lot of those take up two slots. Um, for instance, one slot might be for the HDMI ports. If you use Adobe's products like Adobe Premiere or After Effects, they use CUDA GPU acceleration um, to accelerate rendering and, and other functions. Also, Blackmagic DaVinci uses this technology to accelerate the, uh, the program. Well, graphics cards are big. They usually take up two slots and they need fast slots as well. Um, as well, there's a whole pile of other reasons you might need PCI cards, like an H.264 accel accelerator. Matrox makes some great ones. Uh, they're called RT Max. I highly recommend them. Uh, that's how I get these podcasts and video tips out. Um, there's serial ATA cards because Macs just, for some reason, don't come with serial ATA. Um, there's fiber channel cards to connect to a faster fiber channel network, PCI sound cards, USB 3 cards, more channels of FireWire 800 or USB 2. If it's, a, if it's a server, you might need more Ethernet ports. Tons and tons of reasons that you might want extra PCI slots. Or if you have a, a, a laptop computer or a Mac Mini or something like that, an iMac, you just don't have any slots. Well, there are ways. As a matter of fact, you could have a Mac Mini or a MacBook Air. And now what Magma allows you to do, if you have a Thunderbolt port on that Mac or PC, you can actually add up to 18 PCI slots. They make the new ExpressBox 3T. And what each one of those does is give you three new PCI slots. Um, two 8x PCIe second generation slots and one 4x PCIe. And so uh, you can put three cards into that, but it also has a daisy chain port. So you can actually daisy chain up to six of these together. Literally, can you imagine 18 PCI slots on a $500 Mac mini? Awesome stuff. And uh, you can even put graphics cards and other really fast cards into these slots and get performance out of something like a MacBook Air. Imagine being able to go to, on the road with a MacBook Air and be able to have actual PCI Express fast slots on them. Amazing stuff. Uh, the great thing about Magma, unlike other providers, they make a very wide range of options. Say, for instance, with other providers, they might give you sort of three or four to choose from. And if your needs don't fit, you're stuck. Well, with Magma, they make 
uh, options that range from one slot all the way up to 16 slots with varying speeds for varying needs. Uh, some, like their new Thunderbolt options, are scalable. In other words, you can just add more enclosures as you need them. And others are able to connect without Thunderbolt. Say, for instance, if you have a laptop like a 17-inch MacBook Pro, uh, one of the older ones that doesn't have Thunderbolt, you're not stuck because they also make Express Card versions. Um, so you can add PCI slots to an Express Card laptop. Uh, I should mention as well, Magma has been doing this for a long time. Uh, how long? Well, when Apple Computer themselves needed PCI expansion for their own servers, who did they call? Magma. Enough said. So to understand how to set one of these things up and, uh, and what you're going need, to need to do, let's start with a sample unit. Here I've got the ExpressBox 7 in the studio. There's a number of different versions of the ExpressBox 7 that all look like this. And so first what you're going to need to do is you're going to install a host adapter card into your computer. You're going to want to install it in one of the faster slots in the computer. Depending on the speed of the Magma case that you get, it'll dictate which slot you need to install it in. Say, for instance, it might need to be in an in a 8x or it might need to even be in a 16x, depending on uh, which one it is. And then the uh, that connects via a cable to the back of the Magma. And then the Magma enclosure has, well, let's look inside the unit, a whole pile of slots. So say, for instance, you might have a Mac Pro with only four slots in the computer. One of them is taken up with, with a host adapter card, and all of a sudden you have seven new slots. Depending on which model, as I said, some of them, uh, the ExpressBox 7, like this one here, each slot gives you 4x speed, so that might be suitable for a storage enclosure, enclosure or adding USB 3 cards, serial ATA, etc. Many capture cards, uh, like the, the Blackmagic Decklink Studio card, uh, would be compatible with this. The Matrox H264 accelerator, accelerators would be compatible with this. Um, as well, you can get a model generation two, which gives you 8x slots, which are massively, massively powerful. As a matter of fact, they can handle up to eight gigabytes per second. So that is definitely all the band bandwidth you might need. I would recommend something like that for Blackmagic DaVinci, for GPU acceleration and um, other uh, high performance needs lots of graphics cards, things like that. Uh, they make many different sizes of cases, but all of them are going to look somewhat like this, where you're going to have a bunch of PCI slots inside. And, and how complicated is it? It's literally just as if those slots were in your computer. You just insert the card, you screw it in, and make sure you power on the Magma enclosure first, and then power on your computer, and then that's it. There's no drivers. There's no nothing. According to your computer, it just all of a sudden thinks that it's got a pile of extra slots. Very, very cool. Very, very easy. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the options that are available. As I mentioned before, they can go from one slot all the way up to 16. The one slot cards are available uh, for Express Card or for PCI Express. So if you have a laptop with Express Card, you can just use one of these. If all you need is just one card, this gives you one PCI Express slot as well. There's an ExpressBox 2, which gives you two 8x slots. This is a, a more of a rack style unit, and uh, it also connects by ExpressCard or an 8x low profile 
uh, card in your desktop computer. One that I'm very, very excited about, as I mentioned before, the ExpressBox 3T, which is for Thunderbolt equipped computers, which is not just Mac, but also PCs are now coming out with Thunderbolt. If you have a Mac Mini, if you have a MacBook Air, if you have any uh, current generation MacBook, if you have an iMac, and I'm hoping <laughs> sometime soon, Mac Pro is gonna have Thunderbolt. This lets you, each one that you install, and they're, they're under $1,000, lets you install up to three cards, two generation two 8X slots and one generation two 4X slot. So again, a Mac mini, if you had two of these, would have six slots, including four 8X generation two slots. And we're talking about something that costs less than a, than a Mac Pro. Killer stuff. Awesome stuff. Now do go to the website because there are some limitations at the moment. A lot of the the makers of PCI cards have to come out with Thunderbolt aware drivers, but Magma is working. If you look on, on their site, they have, actually I'm, I'm gonna look right now. Um, they have a pile of partners that they're working with very aggressively. Um, just a few of them, Apple, Avid, Red, Intel, Universal Audio, Aja, Atto, um, Apogee. <laughs> Promise. Um, they're working with CalDigit and lots more to make sure that as soon as possible, these drivers are going to be um, Thunderbolt aware. So coming very, very soon, but uh, make sure you contact them to find out when uh, this support is coming. As well, there's uh, there's an ExpressBox 4 that gives you four slots. And as well, uh, very, very exciting is an ExpressBox 4 1U, it's called. It's a, it's a one unit uh, rack mountable unit. And this one is really cool. It gives you four generation one or generation two 8X PCIe slots, but this one is scalable. And so if you have a, a PCI Express PC or Mac computer, you can literally add tons of these. You you can go up to, boy, I forget. It's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 slots. It's something crazy. Um, but it's it just suffice it to say that you can just keep on adding more and more slots and go as high as you want. You can have a massively powerful um, server or workstation with something like that. As I mentioned, there's a bunch of ExpressBox 7 models with seven slots. And if you want to go all the way to the top, ExpressBox 16 gives you 16 slots at either 8X or 16X PCI Express speeds. I urge you, if you're at all interested in, in these things, especially men, I mean, if you have a Mac or PC that has a Thunderbolt port, why wouldn't you want to add these PCI Express slots? Go to magma.com and go to their products page and you can see a list of all of these options and, uh, and make sure to do, uh, do contact their salespeople if you have any questions about the configuration that you need for your particular cards. Wow, as a, as a video editor, as a colorist, and as somebody who is always, I'm, a, I'm always limited by my computers. I, I find they never have quite enough power. Well, this is a, a revolution that gives your existing computer lots, lots more power. Wow, killer stuff. I urge you to go to magma.com to find out about these great, great solutions. Thanks so much for joining me. This has been Gray Jones from tvwriterpodcast.com and Video Tips. 
And do check out my YouTube channel. Search for Graham A. Jones on YouTube for more video tips. You can also follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones is my handle or search IMDb for Gray Jones and you want the one with two next to it. But anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining me. It's been great. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web.